you did. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are moving very slowly through this uh, ladder of grace as we seek to add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. We are only halfway through that journey, and so we need perseverance. No, we need perseverance uh, particularly today, as that will be the focus of our study. But let's begin back at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll read down through uh, verse 11. In fact, uh, maybe I'll go through verse 15 today to catch all those reminder references. Second Peter chapter 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, even as we read this passage again, we pray that you would stir up by way of reminder those things which we know that we have received and heard and have staked our lives on, we pray that we who have begun this journey may be given grace to continue it and that you would bring us safely home, even as you have begun a good work in us, Father. So we pray that you would complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Preserve us through such perseverance. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin with a uh, couple of lines with a wonderful illustration from Charles Spurgeon. In his great devotional, Morning and Evening, he writes, Faith untried may be true faith, 
but it is sure to be little faith. And it is likely to remain dwarfish so long as it is without trials. When a calm reigns on the sea, spread the sails as you will, the ship doesn't move from the harbor. For on a slumbering ocean, the ship sleeps too. Let the winds rush, howling forth, and let the waters lift up themselves. Then, though the ship may rock and her deck be washed with waves, and her mast may creak under the pressure of the full sail, then it is that she makes headway toward her desired haven. I think there's great wisdom in there that faith untried may be true faith, but it is sure to be little. We are on a voyage, a long voyage already begun. We are much in need of perseverance in every way. The Bible speaks about such perseverance in doing good, perseverance in hope, in ministry, in doing God's will, in running the race that is set before us, perseverance in hard work, in faith, and on and on. We need perseverance for every Christian virtue. I mean, what good is it to learn to be a loving person if our love fails the moment things get difficult? What good is service if we give up when it is most needed? James writes, therefore, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance may be a virtue, but it's not really a virtue on its own. It's every virtue at its testing point, whether we can continue in the face of difficulty. But perseverance, when we have it, is a priceless treasure, for we long to finish what we start. We long to be people who follow through on commitments, who stand firm amidst the storms of life, who maintain relationships through tough times, people that can outlast our trials and flourish in other virtues. It was by perseverance, Spurgeon said, that the snail reached the ark. And how we long to hear the words of Christ, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. We long for such a commendation. Well, Gaining perseverance means maturing to the people that God designed us to be. Not the little acorn, but the strong, mighty oak. It means becoming functioning, healthy Christians instead of distracted infants. Job said, when God has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Perseverance means going all the way through the dark valley to the other side with God. And without perseverance... Well, we tend to turn aside or shrink back in sinful ways. Sometimes when the going gets tough, the tough get going, but not in the right way. They, they seek an escape. A relationship gets hard, they cut it off. A problem at church gets hard, they leave the church. Work gets hard, they quit their job. School gets hard, they, they stop studying. Marriage gets hard, they're out of here. Take, I'm taking the dog. They run away. And... If they can't run physically, then they'll run emotionally, lacking perseverance. Some respond seeking to escape. Others 
have not flight but fight. They respond with anger. When things get hard, they only hold it in so long, but then they blow up. Others turn to some indulgence in sin. I've been dealing with this so long, I deserve this pleasure. And the devil gets a foothold that way. Others lacking perseverance begin to doubt God and question his goodness and love. People think, well, why should I follow the Lord when it's so hard for me? Doesn't he care? And they grow cold spiritually, not serving or giving or worshiping or witnessing. Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And he asks, what good is it to start a tower if you're not able to finish building it? Or hear these verses from Hebrews. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he promised. Or again, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and perseverance inherit what has been promised. God is not going to save us without perseverance, brothers and sisters. It is perseverance that is before us today. What does it mean? Webster's Dictionary says perseverance is to persist in a state, enterprise, or undertaking in spite of counter-influences, opposition, or discouragement. And there are a lot of counter-influences, opposition, and discouragement around us. Are there not? Amen. How relevant this is for us as it was for Peter's original readers as well. You know what they were having to endure? Peter mentions three things, and I'll take them in reverse order. Peter mentions the long wait that they were experiencing for the Lord's return. They started out with eagerness, but chapter 3, verse 3 following, Peter writes, Know this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They were experiencing the, the agony of a long wait. And as I've said before, the Christian life would be a snap if the Lord fulfilled all his promises to us in a few days or even a few years. But that is not the course that is laid before us. We are in a marathon, not a sprint. We have received what Peter calls exceedingly great and precious promises. But we find ourselves, like them, waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, waiting many years, hard years, for what he has promised but not yet given. We wait for deliverance from sin. We wait for the presence of God. We wait for all of our desires of our hearts to be fulfilled. Exceeding great and precious promises indeed the coming of our Savior and a thousand other things, but, but on and on we wait. The weeks pass and the months and sometimes whole lifetimes. Like Simeon and Anna, we wait all of our lives to seek the consolation of Israel and, and we may not see it. And it's hard to go the whole distance 
to wait for the Lord's return. They experienced that. But even more discouraging, we read in chapter 2 about the apostasy of false teachers. In the meantime, this is what they were experiencing. Chapter 2, verse 19, people that promise liberty while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him he's put it, brought into bondage. These false teachers had not persevered. We write, after they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Some of their own number, some of the teachers among them, had turned aside to ungodliness. As the proverb says, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to wallow in the mire. They were encouraging others to join them. And the devil knows that we are just too ready sometimes to settle for short-term happiness than long-term obedience in the same direction. We find ourselves wanting to hear the siren song of false teachers. You have many examples. We could think of that best-selling critic of historic Christianity, Bart Ehrman, who's not only on the shelves down at the Barnes & Noble, but was invited here to Virginia Tech a couple years ago for the inaugural lecture of the new Department of Religion and Culture. His lecture was called, Are the New Testament Documents Forged? <laughs> not that he had any evidence that they were, of course, but that doesn't mean that his talk wasn't very persuasive. All the worse because Ehrman himself lived for quite a time as an earnest Christian. He was raised in a Christian home. He had what he calls a born-again experience at a youth rally. He eventually attended Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College before beginning doctoral studies at Princeton under Bruce Metzger, who was a very sharp scholar and lost his faith. And now he uses all of his academic prestige and mental powers as a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to lead others to doubt biblical Christianity as widely as he can. Now, it's bad enough when Bart Ehrman leaves the faith, but how much more discouraging it is for him to lead people that we love astray. It wasn't him, but other teachers that led two very close Christian friends of mine in Charlotte, one of whom was in my wedding party, men whom I counted my closest friends. In the last couple years, they've denied the faith, they've left their wives, they have caused the people that love them great pain and misery. It's agonizingly discouraging when we are seeking to persevere in those who taught us or those who walked with us turn aside and call us away as well. Maybe the same thing has happened to those whom you love. This danger is real. We read it in chapter 3. 
You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led astray with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beware the apostasy of false teachers. Beware these who are turning aside to the error of the wicked. Beware. The third difficulty that Peter describes is the subject of practically his entire first letter to them, the persecution of the world. The persecution of the world. It's already a long wait, point one. We already have to suffer false teachers and false brethren amidst us. And then on top of that, we have the persecution of the world from those outside. Peter uses the verb to suffer 12 times more than all the other New Testament letters combined. And understand that they are not even yet in the midst of an official persecution. The kind of persecution that we think about was coming in a few years, starting with the burning of Rome in AD 64, as Nero blamed that on the Christians and made it an illegal religion and so forth. At this point, they were facing not official persecution yet, but something that I think actually does more harm to the church. They were facing a general environment of cultural hatred and hostility, especially because of their distinctively holy Christian lifestyle that implicitly condemned the world. He mentions this several times, especially in the first letter, 316, have a good conscience so that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct may be ashamed. 4-4. They think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, and so forth. Um, maybe you know something about what this is like, facing a constant, relentless pressure. Oh, our religion is legal, but people are lying about us laughing at us, labeling us, marginalizing us, disapproving of us, discriminating against us, speaking evil, God's people were then being intimidated, even threatened. And that, I think, is the pressure that is so devastating to the church, not so much centered on the fact that we go to church and we believe in God or that we worship Him. The world doesn't care so much about those things. But the real pressure is because of our distinctive, holy life. What do you mean you don't accept our practices? The real problem that Peter hits four or five times in his first letter especially is that we are a holy people and we do not plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation. And so they defame us as evildoers. And so at the university and on the news and in the entertainment world and in the arts, shame, misrepresentation, ridicule are poured onto Christians. So that nowadays in the eyes of the news media and the shapers of public opinion, anyone who really believes the Apostles' Creed, anyone who really believes the historic Christian faith are now labeled as fundamentalists. And it won't do any good for you to explain we're not fundamentalists because everyone knows that if you really believe it, you are a fundamentalist. And everyone knows that fundamentalists are the intolerant people, the people that are threatening the harmony and peace of our whole society. 
These are the troublemakers who will not conform. And so Christians are demonized, misrepresented, or as Ted Turner once put it, Christians are bozos. In such a climate, it is hard to sustain a long obedience in the same direction. We are facing the same obstacles and discouragements in our marathon. There's a lot of discouragements around. We need perseverance. How can we do so? Well, I'd like to consider with you two sides of this race, two sides of this marathon. First, running with endurance, and second, looking unto Jesus. Look, running with endurance and, 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 and looking unto Jesus. Uh, I'm borrowing these headings, of course, from the book of Hebrews, which says so vividly, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance or perseverance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. All right, so we consider running with endurance and looking unto Jesus. First, running with endurance. There's a very interesting difference between the modern emphasis of the Christian life and the ancient emphasis of the Christian life. One author pointed it out to me. He, he wrote some years ago, today we emphasize the new birth, being born again, being converted. The ancients emphasized being faithful to the end. We moderns talk about wholeness and purposeful living. They spoke about the glories of the eternal kingdom. This is not to say that early saints ignored initial conversion, nor does it mean that today we have forgotten about the eternal kingdom. But the emphasis in our attention has shifted from the completing of the Christian life to the beginning of it. So that the heroes of modern times, our contemporary Christians, the famous pastors, authors, evangelists, Bible teachers, born-again athletes and politicians in the limelight with stirring testimonies of dramatic conversions. But you know, in days gone by, it was those who had finished the course, those who, living still to be sure, had gone on to glory, who were counted as the heroes of the faith the martyrs, and so forth. The classical passage describing how the early church viewed its heroes is Hebrews 12, that great cloud of witnesses who are with their Savior cheering us on today. Now, I thought that was very insightful. And this emphasis is well represented here in our letter. As Peter uh, surely is very interested in, in, in wholeness of Christian living. But again and again and again, he is pointing us to eternal glory. Um, if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants us to take the long-term view, 
pursue these things, not just so they'll help us in the meantime, but that you will make it through the hours of this fleeting world. For chapter 3, the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And again and again, he speaks about us looking far in the distance, looking at the end of our race and keeping that in our eye, diligently making progress in order that we might make our calling and election sure. Because he who practices his faith now will not only advance, he says, but find that that faith is growing stronger to resist influences that would weaken and cripple it and bring us safely home. Do you want to make it to the end? Then today, press on to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exercise godliness, because it's a long race. And it's not the beginning of the race that he emphasizes here, but the end. Continue to be an out-and-out Christian, and even more. And then an abundant entrance will be supplied to you. To the eternal kingdom. Peter is also doing exactly what we need to do, just encouraging one another, or as he puts it especially, reminding each other of what we know. As Peter points out four times in this short letter, uh, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to remind you, okay, okay. I'm going to remind you and remind you, okay. We, we, we need to be reminded of these truths that are still in the future, these great and precious promises that are going to be used by the Holy Spirit to engage us to press on. When we think about perseverance, we tend to think about our individual need to be faithful, to be disciplined, self-controlled. Fair enough. Those things are essential. We need to learn to walk alone. But especially, as Peter illustrates to us, we need people to remind us and encourage us and love us and care for us. We need devoted relationships among God's people. For too many believers fail to recognize that Christianity is a team sport. And just as it is painful and discouraging when our teachers, yes, and our friends depart, so it is so helpful and encouraging when they continue to urge us on and remind us of what we know, and call us forward. That great cloud of witnesses that was pictured in Hebrews cheers on the racers when they hit the wall. We are not ever called to go it alone. We need to pursue and cultivate such robust, robust godly friendships where we are encouraged are, and we encourage others. It's almost always the case in my experience that when people make shipwreck of the faith or deny the Lord, those people have been isolated themselves. They didn't have close, honest, supportive, encouraging, 
spiritual relationships with other Christians, not just ordinary relationships, but these kind. I want to remind you of those things that you know. I want to encourage you to press on. People kept their struggles to themselves. They fell down alone, and there was no one to lift them up. And this is why we need each other. The church is much more than a worshiping community. It's a nurturing, edifying, loving, serving, encouraging, transforming body of believers. And through the ministry of everyone in the congregation, the church becomes an instrument in the hand of God to renew His promises, to remind us of His blessing, to effect His healing purposes through His Word. And an hour of worship, or maybe a half hour of conversation over pastries, is not sufficient to persevere such a long time in such a hostile culture where people fall by the, by the wayside every day. You cannot be a Christian on your own. Well, you can, but not a healthy, holy Christian as you need to be. And we must cultivate an atmosphere among the body of Christ, strengthening, encouraging, edifying, affection, as Peter writes, putting his heart on his sleeve, urging them on, reminding them of what they know, telling of the great and precious promises and the power that is ours, lest we be nearsighted and blind and forget the great privilege that we have of being God's people. This is the call to run our race with perseverance. Run it together. And also remember, friends, that perseverance ultimately is not our hope. That is, perseverance didn't die for us. Perseverance doesn't justify us. We won't be saved without perseverance, and we won't be looking to perseverance as our Savior. But perseverance must come through Jesus. And so... All our persevering must be done, my second point of application, looking unto Jesus. Peter, in his first letter, writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, that's a lot of words, so let me emphasize that last part. That you, he says, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, some have suggested that one of these two things that Peter is teaching cannot be true. Some have said, well, we know from the Bible's teaching an abundant example that people do fall away, that we are not kept for eternity by the power of God, and it can't possibly be true that God has chosen to give some new birth to everlasting life and therefore preserves them to the end. It must be up to you 
And the old saw was God has cast his vote against you, and the, sorry, God has cast his vote for you and the devil against you. Now it's up to you. You got to break the tie. Well, others have said, no, 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 no. It's the other thing that's true. Once saved, always saved, kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And therefore, once you've made a decision for Jesus, no matter how you ignore or despise him the rest of your life, you must be heaven-bound. There's nothing to fear. And both of those are terrible errors that warp and skew the Christian life. On the one hand, taking away our dependence on God, our comfort, our courage, our assurance. Or on the other hand, promoting sin, presumption, hypocrisy, or even a false revivalism. Peter teaches both. We are called to sorry, we are called to run this race looking unto Jesus. One of Augustine's most insightful books is called On the Gift of Perseverance. Sixty-eight chapters about what perseverance is, how it's experienced, why it's essential for the life of the believer. He begins the work defining perseverance as a divine gift by which an individual perseveres in Christ to the end of his life, given only to the elect, he says. Many others will start the journey, but only the elect are given the gift of perseverance, the title of his book. He then shows how this coincides with New Testament warnings against apostasy, which is real, the doctrine of predestination, and biblical examples of prayers for endurance, as well as the teaching of earlier fathers like Cyprian and Ambrose, uh, a very thorough work. Um, It didn't go over as well as he had hoped in some quarters. So a few years later, there was an important synod in the 6th century to deal with what's later called the semi-Pelagian doctrine, the doctrine of John Cassian and others. The Second Council of Orange was called in 529 A.D. In fact, I've put Canon 6 in your notes in the back, uh, on the back page of the bulletin. As the church met together to deal with the idea that basically, you know, God gives us some help, but it's ultimately up to us, semi-Pelagian. Uh, the Second Council of Orange... Uh, Here is its sixth canon. If anyone says that God has mercy upon us when, apart from his grace, we believe, will, desire, strive, labor, pray, watch, study, seek, ask, or knock, but does not confess that it is by the infusion and inspiration of the Holy Spirit within us that we have the faith, the will, or the strength to do all these things as we ought. Or if anyone makes the assistance of grace depend on the humility or obedience of man and does not agree that it is a gift of grace itself, that we are obedient and humble. He contradicts the apostle who says, 
what have you that you did not receive? And by the grace of God, I am what I am. God requires of us faith. God requires of us perseverance. But the God who appoints the end also appoints the means. The God who demands these things for salvation gives those very things by his grace. You say, I don't understand. Well, just as God gives a harvest, and yet the farmer has to go out and plant and water, in fact, God himself joins these things together. It's no trouble. Farmers understand the harvest is from the Lord, and God has told me to do this work. God grants the harvest, and I am fully engaged. It's not an excuse for laziness. It is not an excuse to depend all upon myself or the elements of nature. And when we think about perseverance, we should think about it like we think about faith. Faith, the Bible says, is the gift of God. And yet, we are the ones who do the believing. God gives us that faith by his grace, but he doesn't believe for us. We believe. In the same way, perseverance is a gift of God. But we are the ones who must do the persevering. We are the ones who must continue and labor and endure and strive and watch and pray. And we are 100% engaged. It is first 100% God who is at work in us. And it is 100% us working on our salvation. Both things are true. And God is preserving his saints through our perseverance. Not without it, not apart from it. This perseverance is to make us diligent as well as dependent. Diligent to work as we're dependent on God. It's what a farmer is. Not boasting. It's all up to me. Not presuming. I don't have to do anything. Paul constantly gives us the proper balance. Where he goes on to say, uh, the next verse from that uh, was quoted by the Council of Orange, I worked harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He knows he's going to be with the Lord as he is repeatedly saying the Lord is going to preserve him. And yet he says, I keep under myself, I buffet my body, lest I should be disqualified. What it basically is saying is you need to run the race looking unto Jesus. That Jesus is not going to save you without perseverance, but through perseverance, training your perseverance. He will preserve his saints through their daily persevering. And if perseverance is his gift, then we are to ask and receive for such a gift. I know it hurts your head, but this is the way the Bible constantly represents the fact of the matter to us. When Charles Spurgeon was a young man, he had some friends who were held up to him as examples. You know, you should be like so-and-so. But later, when those same friends grew up, their lives took a turn for the worse. They became the kind of people that his parents began to warn him about. And that frightened Spurgeon. And he wrote, that may also be my character in years to come. Is there any way by which a holy character can be insured for the future? Is there any way by which a young man, by taking heed, 
may be kept from uncleanness and iniquity. And I found that if I put my trust in Christ, I had the promise that I should hold on my way and grow stronger and stronger. Oh, if I could but come to Christ, then I should be safe. He was right indeed. If he was depending on himself, he was going to fall. If he was able to abide in Christ, though it was going to cost him everything, he was going to be able to persevere. Jesus made that promise. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them all to me, given them to me, is greater than all. Or again, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Or we read the promises of the new covenant again and again. This is what God says. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. If there's anyone that's going to be saved, he's going to be saved through the new covenant. And that covenant promises that because of God's work in the heart, we will not depart. But that work in the heart means that by it, we will endure. Can you hold it together? It's not all up to us. And it's not so up to God that we don't have to do anything. Spurgeon again, we preach no rickety gospel that will not bear your weight. It is no chariot without axles that will snap or with wheels that will be taken off. There is no foundation of sand here by which we may sink in the day of flood. Here is the everlasting God pledging himself by covenant and oath that he will write his law in your heart, that you shall not depart from him. He will keep you so that you shall not wander into sin, but if for a while you do stray, he will restore you again to the paths of righteousness. O young men and maidens, turn in here. Cast in your lot with Christ and his people. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him, and then shall this precious truth be yours and the experience of it be illustrated in your life. All right. So here it is, we're in a marathon, and just like a marathon, it's going to be sweat and tears, and you're going to hit the wall, and you're going to slow down. And how is it that you are going to persevere? I tell you, you keep looking unto Jesus. Look unto him, and you will find this is a very comforting and practical doctrine indeed. For over and over again, we are assured that looking unto him, he will preserve us to the end. Paul is confident that he who began a good work will complete it in you till the day of Christ. And so in all Paul's trials, he's not discouraged. He says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Or I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he's able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Now, a, a variation of the semi-Pelagian doctrine came up again in the 17th century, uh, the teachings of Jacob Harmon or J. 
James Arminius and an international Protestant synod was called at Dort. And in their canons, they go through again all the passages of, of, of holding these things together, but they, but they write uh, in it this assurance of perseverance. So far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, right? Well, if you know you're going to persevere, why do you have to do anything? So far from making believers proud and carnally self-assured, it is rather the true root of humility. It is not me. Of childlike respect. I am totally dependent on my Father. Of genuine godliness. Of endurance in every conflict. Of fervent prayers. For it is His gift. Of steadfastness in cross-bearing. And confessing the truth. And of well-founded joy in God. I know whom I have believed. Reflecting on this benefit, says the Synod at Dort, provides an incentive to serious and a continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as, it, as is evidenced from the testimony of Scripture and the examples of the saints. So, dear friends, this is our great joy and confidence. If we are persuaded that He has written it in our very hearts that we may not depart, and that we would be persuaded, therefore, that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities or powers, or things present or things to come, or height or depth or any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This rich teaching of the Bible, that we are preserved by God through our perseverance, is the comfort of the godly. And the flesh doesn't understand, and Satan hates this truth, and the world ridicules it, and hypocrites abuse it. False teachers constantly attack it. But the bride of Christ has always loved this teaching, and defended this teaching, and held it as a priceless treasure. That though we must struggle and strive at every step, we do not do so in our own strength. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who it may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that indeed our strength is small indeed. And were it possible for us to fall away this very day, we assuredly would, for we do not have it in us to make the long trek. We are those of the various soils that we read earlier by nature, that hard, packed dirt, the one with no root but a rocky uh, footing, uh, susceptible to all the snares and the thorns of life. Oh, Father, our only hope is in you. Our only, our only desire is that we might abide in Christ and that somehow in a way that is only known to you that he would make the fire in us to rise higher and hotter. That even though we find strength failing, that yet we are still carried on looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. Yes, we consider him lest we would surely become weary and discouraged in our souls. O heavenly king, we seek your power and your might. We trust not in our own strength in these discouraging times. Renew our spiritual vitality. Restore your promises in us. Put your fear in our hearts and let our hearts then find comfort in you for you are the giver of every good gift, including the gift of perseverance and endurance as we look unto you through Jesus.